on the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. In this episode, we're going to spend a bit of time admiring the pretty visage of our web apps as we take a look at the history and the current state of front-end development. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Rob. How are you doing, sir? Hello, Mark. I'm good. I'm on a mission. Are you on a mission? On a mission to record an entire episode of Local Host Podcast without saying, um, once. Apart from that one. I'll have to edit that out. Like all the other <laughs> without saying once, that will really confuse the listeners. So, as a background, uh, I, part of the editing process for the podcast, we remove our, our ums and ha's and uh, various vocalizations to make ourselves seem much smarter. And you, the listener, not have to listen to us going um and ha. So, we just blither our way through the topic, and it turns out that I do it a lot. So, I, I apologize both to Mark, to anybody else who's had to edit this podcast, and anybody else who's had to listen to this podcast suffering through my inability to form a sentence without filler or gap noises. There we go. So, this episode is all about the front end. We, we've spent so long talking about Docker, about going onto the servers, about version control. We've we've talked about all that kind of infrastructure stuff, but I thought it might be fun to talk about the, the stuff that's fun, what actually gets a lot of people into development in a way. I wasn't one of these, but I think from the beginning of the internet, there's only three languages and there's still only three languages, which is CSS, HTML, and the glue that binds it all, the one ring to join them, which is kind of JavaScript, right? Yeah, so it's, um, as, as you say, it's one of the core technologies of the web and has been for ages. And for a lot of people, I think you're probably correct that it, if they've just picked up a you know, notepad and they're getting into web development, they've hacked out some HTML, JavaScript is their first exposure to what I would consider to be proper programming. Right. Which is not to belittle HTML or CSS, both of which are very close to my heart, but it's often the, the gateway language, if you will. Right. I mean, and, and it's an interesting language because it has got a lot of aspects of other languages but it's all done in its own unique kind of way. I mean, it's a functional language, but it's got like object-oriented kind of stuff in there, like with prototypes if you want. But we should kind of go back to like, where did JavaScript pop out from if you don't know about this? But before we do that, let's tell our listeners how they can get in touch with us with ideas, comments, and if they've got a complaint about this, this episode, where can they go? If you have a complaint, I'll tell you where you can go. Can go. <laughs> no, if you want to get hold of uh, us, we are at localhostfm on Twitter. And you can uh, email us at show at localhost.fm. Or if you don't want to uh, be more broad, you can target us individually for abuse and praise in equal measure, hopefully. Uh, I'm at Rob Dudley on Twitter. I am at, at Mark Drew on Twitter. So there we go. Good. Now we now we know where we stand. Now you know how to get in contact with us. Let's get on with the history of JavaScript. Right. Where does it all begin? Let's begin at the beginning. At the beginning of the web, that we had like mosaic, right? NCS. Was it called NCSA mosaic? An NCSA mosaic. Yes, the first web browser, or not the first web browser, but the first successful, prolific web browser. Right. I think there were at least ten people using it. Back then, when tens, I, of tens of people, I remember actually my being introduced to it in my university computer lab, and uh, by someone that, and this is no irony, I'm not 
I'm not making this up, was showing me some Star Trek stuff and he was showing me how you can download pictures from the internet very, very, very slowly in this little browser that had like a little uh, M on it in the, and it kind of animated every time you're trying to download something because you had to look at something because the download was very, very slow in, those, in them days. Yeah, so Mosaic, I can't remember the exact history without referencing it, but let's put it this way. Mosaic is then somewhat surpassed by other browsers, including... Well, inclu- it became uh, Netscape. Yeah, it got subsumed into Netscape. Formed the Netscape Communications Company, and it, they did Netscape 2, essentially. Well, as part of doing that, they needed some kind of glue to add some functionality, and the group contracted someone called Brendan Eich. I'm gonna, I'm probably butchering people's name. No, I think that's right, Brendan Eich. And he basically mocked up a, a language called Mocha in about ten days to go into Netscape Navigator two. And this is back in 1995, right? I don't know. We should find some sound clips to get everyone in the mood, you know? What some Ace of Base kind of stuff for? <laughs> Uh, and it got renamed JavaScript. And there's a bit of controversy why it got named JavaScript, because at the same time, Java was coming up. So they were trying to make it as funky as uh, if Java can be funky. But they were trying to do a marketing exercise for that. I mean, if you go and read other stuff that there is like, oh, no, it's completely unrelated. But I think that's what, what the real case was. I think it's, yeah, there's there's a natural parity. Devs like coffee. We name a lot of things after coffee. Um, and it, it predates the massive, massive success of Java, which means that now nobody names anything after coffee anymore because everybody's just like, ah, it's Java. I also love the fact that even in its formative state, JavaScript was hacked out in 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of feels like it's a precursor for what is to come down the line. <laughs> you think? You know, I know where the state we are now, like with Node and everything else, we've got like server-side JavaScript and stuff. But even from back then, you could actually run it in Netscape Enterprise Server. I think it was called ActiveScript. I'm going to like, get this wrong. And pe- people in the background are going, oh, welcome Wikipedia. This stuff. I think it was called ActiveScript. And you could actually do, oh, no, I beg your pardon, it's called LiveScript on Netscape Server. So you could actually do JavaScript on the server like way back back then, right? So back in the the mid-90s. And even IIS has supported it since then, if I'm correct. It's done it like in .NET or ASP. You could choose the language, and one of them was JavaScript. So you could do server-side JavaScript, but it just wasn't incredibly popular. Um, A lot of people are going to tell me that I'm wrong in this, but that it was very popular in their companies. But, you know, in my travels around web companies, it was like, yeah, whatever. We'll do Visual Basic instead of anything. We'll do Perl. We'll do Cold Fusion at the time compared to well, I can doing imagine stuff in JavaScript. The, yeah, the potential reason for lack of popularity back then is uh, lack of maturity, obviously. Also, we don't really have, as we'll come on to, the fact that part of the popularity of JavaScript, aside from its ubiquity, is also its modularity and its um, massive library of stuff mm. right which which it, at the time you didn't have available. happen until its second go around yeah and of course discuss. there was a, there was a lot of change because you had netscape 3 then you had like internet explorer coming out and you had like i'm going to say the browser wars which was like just different browsers coming out and more versions coming out and as a developer you were kind of fighting to keep up with these things right so yeah. one of your big tasks was like well does this function work 
across browsers. I realize that that's still a, a, a thing, but it's compared to like document.getElementById didn't work in one browser or the other. So you can, you know, JavaScript was, yeah, I mean, you had to test a lot of it. <laughs> I would say that those who, at risk of sounding like a crusty old developer, those who didn't live through the original browser wars probably don't quite grasp the sheer level of disparity between the different providers we've got. On the one hand, we've got Netscape. On the other hand, we've got Microsoft. And a lot of their stuff went completely left and completely right. And we're still, to this day, paying down that kind of technical choice. Now there's, it, there's some changes, but they're not they're not in any way comparable to what they were back then. Yeah, no, it was, it was horrific. You were almost writing your code twice in most instances. And of course, that's what gave rise to stuff like Flash, right? Uh, or Future Splash, as it started out being, because it was like you're able to do animation and, and you're able to do like, and eventually apps and things like that. They just run on everything. And that was one of the big sellers. You could do like very advanced stuff that you didn't have to be going, oh, well, if you're on this browser, this is going to work. And if, if in this other browser, there's this other thing going to work. And there wasn't even shims. It was just like it didn't have that functionality, yeah. right? No, um, shims didn't come until much, much later. Yeah, so in Flash's popularity was also the commitment from the company behind it that they weren't going to break Flash, which was the other thing. You had no idea whether or not the next version of Netscape was going to deprecate this or Microsoft might decide to add a whole bunch of stuff, you know, in the, the dark days of DHTML, if you remember that. A purely Microsoft Internet Explorer-only set of extensions to JavaScript, and you're like going, well, these are amazing, but they don't work in, in Netscape. Um, so yeah, Flash was massively appealing because it was pretty much, you could write once, run on any Flash-enabled browser, but also you had a commitment from a company to ensure that what you had written would still work in two, three months' time. Right, and in a few versions' time at, at any rate. And it gave you also a lot of functionality that which at the time wasn't available, right? Like video streaming, for example, like being able to have video within your within your app and things like that. But I think we're digressing a little bit into what Flash did. We are. I mean, let's let's kind of nose it back onto course. Uh, so we've got this situation where we've basically got two completely separate versions of the same language. We've got increasing demands on the web developer because this is, what are we now? We're kind of um, the very late 90s, so the web boom is going nuts. The dot-com uh, boom, you know? The dot-com boom, yes. Yeah. That's literally then, right? Um, it's about to go boom, <laughs> but hasn't quite yet. Um, we then get uh, a couple of people who get a bit fed up, I think, of the fact that they're constantly having to write JavaScript to target both of these platforms and decide enough is enough, they're going to fix it. And they create jQuery, I think, is the first, well, not, not the first, I beg your pardon. There's a lot of other uh, libraries out there. But jQuery, I think, was the biggest one, the one that really was an introduction to a lot of people on that you could do scripting and do a lot more, right? You could do Ajax in one way instead of the 15 different ways that you had to do it with mm -hmm. other things. They introduced Ajax, I guess. To be honest with you, you know, Ajax was there before, but it was crazy. Do you remember Data Islands? No. Okay, so this is like an IE-only thing that you're able to put data in a script, in a script tag and, and things like that. It had crazy, like, different concepts on both sides. And I'm trying to remember the, the actual function that IE introduced that did Ajax, but then you had to do something completely different from Netscape, like literally completely different. And jQuery came in and said, like, hey, you can manipulate the DOM. I think one of the first examples is, like, 
making a paragraph appear and disappear. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the co- code was jQuery uh, or dollar sign P dot show. And, you know, head explode GIF moment for... And the, the crowd goes wild. Right. Because fundamentally, jQuery's original mission, aside from being kind of a, a UI toolkit and a DOM interaction toolkit, the one big thing that it promised was to bring that consistency that Flash had brought to JavaScript. It handled all of the different variants. It was basically a whacking great abstraction layer over all of these different functionalities. And that led to massive popularity. Ajax, as you say, was horrifically complex. You'd got completely different objects uh, or completely different methods, depending on which browser you were on. You got completely different uh, parameters required. Mm. You got completely different return types in some instances. And jQuery just said, no, don't worry about that. Just call jQuery.get and we'll handle it from there. Yeah. And it actually introduced a lot of programming languages, uh, programming ideas, or, or front-end programming ideas, I should say. One which is traversal, like how you traverse the DOM. So up mm-hmm. until then, you were treating the DOM kind of like an XML thing. But then they're like, hey, no, you've got classes on IDs. You can use something called Sizzle. To uh, This might have been introduced later, but the, the equivalent of Sizzle, the CSS um, navigation thing, that you can say, hey, go and get a, a how you're using your CSS traversal and rules, you can use those in jQuery to access stuff. So using the same kind of language that you're using in CSS to actually target things rather than some kind of XML traversal that get this node, get the child node, get this, this node match this, you know, all the all this stuff that you had to do to actually get stuff. I think young kids nowadays have no idea how good they have it. <laughs> As a crusty developer mode. Uh, but yeah, it removed the requirement for... Because I think we, we, we were kind of using XPath or we were targeting by scattered IDs and it was it was bad times. Yeah. You know, it was messy, it was hard to maintain. And it became a thing that, that I'm going to say there's like clever developers did and it wasn't like, like development for the masses. If you wanted to do your little site, you, okay, so I remember the days that you could copy the thing and you have little stars following your mouse, but writing that, that was really difficult. Now you could actually do get a lot done with jQuery. And I think one of the things that jQuery really instilled in people was this whole, a couple of ideas, I should say, but one is that functions are first-class citizens, so you can pass them around, they're callbacks, right? Mm-hmm. And the other one is um, chaining. So in jQuery, you chain a lot of stuff and you're always returning the same object. Yep. Right? Uh, and, well, I say the same object. You're returning like the whatever the this scope is. So like if you get a tag, the this is the tag, right? And the same time, we had a lot of other libraries that were solving the same problem or adding super functionality to the base language, like uh, underscore, which is still going, is still a great library for adding methods that, you know, for manipulating things. Well, that's kind of underscores a, a more general, it's, it's become a more general toolkit now, an extension toolkit to underlying JavaScript. Right. I think the next one on your list is uh, Moo. Now, I seem to recall that being almost a direct competitor equivalent to jQuery. And I think, and I remember there was a bit of a like, oh, well, you use jQuery, I use Moo. You know, it was like literally the, the competitor because they did, they did similar things. I've put Scriptalicious there because I, if I remember, that was pretty, pretty similar to jQuery again. Or as in, Scriptalicious or Scriptaculous? Scriptaculous. Scriptaculous. I, yep, I can't spell. 
Um, the other one was at the time, which I used quite a lot of it, was Spry. Did you ever come across Spry? Now, this one rings a bell, and I'm not sure why. It's kind of filed in the same bit of my brain as other kind of Cold Fusion and Flash stuff, but I don't know if that's relevant. <laughs> uh, right, because it was made by Adobe. Oh, it was, Adobe was made this JavaScript library, which allow you to sprinkle stuff on into a tag, so you could bind tags to each other, which is familiar to I'm going to say it's familiar to new developers because Angular is pretty similar. You say the the concept of binding, data binding, and element binding is still fairly prescient. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it, you did. You you created your tag. And, you, uh, you know, when I say you created your tag, it'll be like, here's an H1 or a list. Here's your unordered list, right? And you could bind it to some data that you get from an Ajax call. But you're just saying, like, bind it to that. And if that data changes, your list would change, right? So you didn't have to do too much scripting in it because you were more defining, like, well, this this loops, right? So just make it loop just bind it to that data. So yeah, so I saw, I still come across a few Spry apps sometimes. This it still works, still binds, still. I think they had bi-directional binding as well. So you could have like a form field that that updated, or if you changed it, it could trigger off a, a, a change, right? And basically this like brought Ajax to the people, right? So people stopped writing like, I guess, HTML generation right? They had like a file. And this has led to what SPA, single page applications, which is a modern equivalent. But I think another library that should go there, which is ext.js. I can't remember what they renamed it into or what its original name was. But this was a UI widgets library, which is similar to the Yahoo UI widgets library, right? So we had like already this ability to do JavaScript on the background uh, in the back end, but now like the form fields were okay, but you wanted progress meters, you wanted, you know, drag and drop, you wanted to have various different things. And well, jQuery provided that with jQuery UI, right? Yes. Yeah, so there were a bunch of, of competing UI component frameworks for the web ext.js was one i think it um i don't know if it's i think it's still called ext.js but it was acquired by a company called censure uh that was it and by and large these were trying to solve a similar problem to because uh, it had already been solved in desktop development where we had you know, the windows component system and on osx you've got um carbon and later the other one can't remember what it's called <laughs> anyway um the idea that you have set widgets that look the same, that are consistent, and handle all of your your UI requirements and your layout requirements. Right. And so like you have these these, these frameworks. Oh, no, actually, they're not even frameworks. They're like libraries, I guess? Yeah. So libraries, in, in the case of EXT, it was actually an extension, a library on a library, because it was based on YUI. Right. But it was like so, the commercial yeah. version of YUI, I think. And and we, we basically have a nice collection of external stuff that we can sprinkle onto our application and it makes it shiny and better and fun. Right. But this kind of led development down a slightly different road, right? Because before, as I was saying, it's like you generate this the whole HTML and then you update it as you need, right? And you do validation or whatever. But these libraries were starting to say like, well, look, you just have the API in the back and we'll connect to it. Now, not a lot of applications became at that time became that, but 
I have been involved in some that, that you had like endpoints that were like nearly all of them were Ajax endpoints. So you download an HTML page that had no data in it, but the JavaScript went off and got the data and then populated it. Mm-hmm. And what the real driver behind this was because even, I suppose you could say even today, but especially back in the, the kind of mid-noughties, a lot of connection speeds weren't great. We didn't want the overhead of downloading an entire page every time. The server speeds weren't brilliant in some instances. So if we could only refresh or make you know change the data that had uh, needed to be modified, our web apps all of a sudden felt much more responsive, much more snappy, much more interactive and dynamic than they had previously when it was click a button and the screen goes white and then you load the screen again. Yeah. And I think there's... It sounds obvious now, sitting where we do, looking back, it's like, well, yeah, of course they were going to do that. But at the time, this stuff was really quite revolutionary because it meant that we could build interfaces onto our applications that weren't clunky and weren't post-back bound that handled nearly as fast or, in some cases, faster than their desktop-based equivalents. Mm-hmm. It brought web development really into its, into its own. And we have to like touch on the on the elephant in the room, which was that Flash was doing a lot of this, and with Flex as well, which was the the, the more UI part of of Flash. You know, was delivering UIs in part in 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 a, with the Flash player, right? And mm-hmm. everyone was going for that. And there was this this dual development of like, well, are you either going to do it in Adobe's Flex environment and Flash? Or are you going to do it in JavaScript? And JavaScript was the, the, the kid at the back of the class compared to Flex, right, in, in capability. So even though we had these libraries, Flex was like, yeah, I can do this, no props, right? I think it was still, because as well, a lot of these different libraries did different things. And so you needed to very carefully pick your combination. And some of them didn't play well with others. So, you know, you pull in jQuery and naturally jQuery would work well with jQuery UI. But jQuery UI was actually a bit bloated and you might want to use EXT stuff because that was a bit more enterprisey. And you had a whole bunch of choices to make, whereas actually the Adobe toolset just provided all of the stuff you needed out of the box and it just worked. And it was suitably enterprisey out of the box. I remember like default flex styling was like, yeah, that is an enterprise dashboard. That's exactly what, if I was to go and straw poll 100 people on the street and say, describe an enterprise dashboard, they would describe a Flex application. Exactly. And and that's what they were aiming at. Even at the beginning, Flex was, if I recall correctly, it was a Flex server for whatever reason that, that was. And it started at 10K. And you're like, it was okay. Which, I'm not going to lie, is probably why it didn't make it. Well, I think that one of the main reasons that well, it didn't make it in the long term, because there's still loads of Flex developers out there, and until this popular phone came out by Apple, well, there's, there's, I suppose it's there's two elements to it, um, and yeah, Apple's announcement that, and I can't remember exactly when it was, it was still Steve Jobs, so it was a while ago. Um, yeah, Apple's announcement that they would no longer support Flash on iOS pretty much was the the death knell for 
large-scale flash development, broad-scale flash development. It was like nearly overnight, all of them like died. And it's like yeah. people were going, okay, well, I'll, I'll buy an Android. And nearly all the the, 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 the staff at uh, Adobe were like suddenly appeared with these Android phones that, that the previous day they had their iPhone. <laughs> but you have to ask what led Apple to make that decision. And I think it was partially the fact that they didn't like, you know, Apple have never liked having control, sorry, other companies having control over things that run their platform. There were concerns over security and what have you. We're not going to get into that. But fundamentally, I maintain that it was because Flash development and Flex development remained closed uh, rather than JavaScript, which was so open it went to the other extreme, that they saw the writing was on the wall because an open platform over time will always, always beat a closed proprietary platform. Right. And Flex, I mean, before people start shouting at me, I do realize it's now part of the Apache Foundation and is open and you can do Flex it's, development. It's a little bit too little too late. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that should have happened like a few years before. So, hey, instead of doing the server, we've open sourced it. You can do it. You can do it. We'll be, just be the, the maintainers of the language or something. But, yeah. So that, that was like the, the death knell of that actually then led Rise, I think, and this is just personal opinion, to like these bigger MVC type frameworks or applications or libraries. I don't know how to define them. I think at this point we can call them frameworks, especially because they are by and large modular. And we're talking about modern front end frameworks. And there'll be, well, you will have heard of all four of these, no doubt. And these basically arose to fill the gap that had been left by things like Flex and to provide, normally, a standard framework for delivery of front-end by a given organization. Right. Uh, Because these all started from one company. I'm not sure about Vue, but we'll, we'll, we'll get onto that. So, first one on the list, Angular. Yeah. I mean, technically, before Angular, we had got Backbone. Are we just going to draw a veil? Yeah, I mean, I have been looking at some Backbone applications, <laughs> and because I hate them so much, I didn't want to. Okay, we're not talking about it. Right, fine. So Backbone's a thing. We don't like it. Moving on. Yeah, so Angular um, also, let's face it, as, as all of these three are still very much relevant, they're still very much in use, they're being actively developed and, and fought over. Well, Angular is, is, is a funny one because it went from one. I mean, they had the whole one to, Angular 1 and 2 kind of dichotomy, but there was a lot of development in, in Angular 1, like, this this was the kind of way to do MVC or front end MVC development, right? You could this is the idea of you're creating an app in the front end and your back end is just data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean this was the first one that was kind of opinionated. Opinionated. That's what it was designed for. It wasn't like I'm a little widget that you put on the bottom right of your page. It's like no, this is how you build your app. Yes. Yeah. And of course, like there, there was the the problem that not the problem, but they decided to like make it non-backwards compatible with Angular two, which they shouldn't have named it Angular two. They should have said like Angular next. Give it a different name, but I suppose, it, yeah. I mean the the various ins and outs. I I personally quite like the fact that they took a very a very courageous stance with Angular two because they didn't they knew what problems they wanted to fix from Angular one they knew what changes they wanted to make so the shift to TypeScript as a preferred uh, language for working with it uh, a whole bunch of additional performance changes and structural changes and 
by this point, we're dealing with developers who've been around the block. They know the hassle of backwards compatibility and they know the performance impact and what have you. And they decided, no, we, we're basically going to reset the clock and go again with all the lessons that we've learned. Sometimes that's kind of okay. It did mean that, yes, unfortunately, there was no easy path to port your Angular 1 applications to Angular 2. But then at the same time, Angular 1 kind of kicks around for a bit, right? Yeah. It's not something that you need to be upgrading all the time, especially in, in applications. But In fact, I have a funny feeling that we are recording this on the 30th of June, 2018. Yeah. I've got this vague thing at the back of my head that Uh-oh. development for Angular 1 is maintained until today. So is they're it? literally, at the end of today, the Angular 1 team are just going to down tools and then it goes into LTS. Okay, so like, excuse us, uh, dear listeners, whilst we Google this stuff. I think you're right. I think it's to June the 30th. Oh, wait, wait, schedule. The team is currently working towards the reuse of Angular 1.70 and we've continued development 1.70 through to June 30th, 2018. On July 1st, we'll enter a three-year long period of long-term support. So literally, yeah, today, that's when they down tools on their development. This is it. Angular, Angular 1 ceases to be actively developed today, but will be supported through 2021. Yep. Wow. So you've got three years to get over yourselves and rewrite it in Angular 2, or just throw your toys out the brown completely, rage quit, and rewrite it in React. Yeah, which is what seems... Uh, you know, sometimes it feels like frameworks are a reaction to other frameworks in a way. I'm not sure if React is this, because React is from Facebook, right? This is how they've been doing Yeah, the Facebook interface for, for youngs. So they, the Facebook built this this framework to basically allow their own engineers to deal with their own UI, and then realized it was kind of handy, opened it up, um, gave it to the world, and we now have React. Yeah. And they had to change some of the licensing and this whole, there's usually drama in one way or the other. But I think one of the interesting things about React, in, in the sense that it's a, yet another front-end framework, it uses tags, generate tags, but you can also use tags within your JavaScript in this form of uh, language called JSX. Yes. So JSX allows you to to just open up a bracket, say render, open bracket, and then put other tags which are which are defined by, by your other scripts, um, which is an interesting way of mixing it up right because it's kind of cool that's the whole markup injection thing i mean we'll probably cycle back to why i don't massively like that approach when we start talking uh, a little bit later on about stuff like pwa and accessibility and the fact that fundamentally i am a html first kind of web dev i'm one of those mm-hmm. um semantics rule <laughs> right uh, but yeah so React brought a completely different approach to Angular whilst doing exactly the same thing. So same result, right, which is a full JavaScript framework for interacting with your UI and interacting with your data and what have you, but did it in a very different way. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Without going into too much detail. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it, it did. And it also like uh, played well with other things of, of how you pass data around, how uh, items change so for example one of the big problems was this 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 idea of shadow dom and how much you change when data changes right so if one bit of data changes in other words the status of one friend that you're seeing on the page 
with other frameworks, a whole page would have to change. And even though you didn't see any change, but every element would have to be updated. But what React was able to give you was this idea of like, it's only something that's changed would actually get re-rendered, which gave massive performance improvements in browsers, right? Mm -hmm. As a React, <laughs> excuse the pun, as a reaction to this, I think Vue came out because it's like React's okay, but it's a little bit heavyweight, not heavyweight, there's a bit of like too much. How about if I just wanted to use it in a certain part of my web page so you can have what Rob likes and is a nice, you know, like semantic HTML page, but I want to do this little dynamic thing over here. You don't have to rewrite everything. So then Vue came along, which I think that's the whole point of Vue, right? I mean, you can do the whole page, but you can also do just a smaller part of it. Yeah, so, I mean, the way that I suppose I would summarize it, and this might be wrong, is if you're building a React application, generally speaking, you have to build the entire application in React to get it to get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas what Vue offered to do was a return to the days of you could sprinkle this functionality over your existing application, right. which, to my mind, means two things. Firstly, it makes it much easier to maintain a decent semantic baseline and a decent simple javascript free application that still works it also means that you can upgrade existing applications with Vue in a way that perhaps you can't with react you can add Vue to a legacy app and start to gradually enhance uh, whereas i think react is a little bit more drastic you probably end up having to tear out quite a lot of what you've got and go again yeah but yeah as i say could be completely wrong but that's that's generally speaking how I see it. I of the three, I have uh, I learned and worked a little bit in Angular one. I've not done any Angular two in Anger. Um, I have dabbled in React. Mm -hmm. Most of the time these days, if I need front endy stuff, I reach for Vue. Okay, I haven't had to any for any of these in Anger yet. The thing that I have worked on is Meteor, which is a kind of slightly different way of working because it, it's actually designed to solve a certain problem, which not everyone has, right? Which is for real-time applications, like chat applications, like stock applications. When you're getting data from the back end and you're updating the front, and if you're updating the front, it up updates the back and multiple clients at the same time. So you're all seeing the same state. So it solves that by using like WebSockets and also like a kind of MongoDB implementation on the client. So you have a server and a client-side Mongo implementation that you can keep in sync via publishing. So you can have multiple clients looking at the same data set or slices of that data set. And everyone's kept in at the same time, right? So if I, stupid example, but if I had a to-do list and I add an item to it, it appears on all the clients that need to, to see it kind of immediately by magic. So that's yet another kind of MVC framework that's using JavaScript. But this is using, I think all of these things now start becoming possible because of Node.js, because that really changed the landscape, didn't it? Well, I think it it's not that they came because of Node.js. It's because Node.js arrived, JavaScript development all of a sudden became incredibly relevant. Okay. Previously, previously, I mean, considering that this, this episode is about front-end, but previously, JavaScript was purely a front-end technology. Everybody knows this. I'm sorry to teach all the suck eggs. But that did mean that the people who worked in it were somewhat 
restricted by the fact that it was front end. So these, generally speaking, were we're talking about like the web designers. They were the ones who were very good at using HTML, CSS, and sprinklings of JavaScript to build UI. Mm-hmm. The introduction of Node means that all of a sudden we've got developers who are using the same technology across the full stack. Yeah. And this is important. We, we touched upon this in a previous uh, podcast about security, right? But it's like that you have your front-end field validation that you now have written in JavaScript for, the, for, the, for your users to, to validate something. Now you have to rewrite that in whatever other language you have to revalidate it on the server side. Yeah. And I know, I know this is not like the biggest problem in, in, in all of web development, but it's still a problem. And now you are able to say like, well, I've got this function on the server side and on the client side, both written in JavaScript that do the same thing. And I can validate on the server side and on the client side. Yeah. And it kind of goes, there's all sorts of additional little parities, all of which sound obvious. But if you think about Ajax, the X in Ajax, right? What does that stand for? XML. Um, so it took me a second. I'm going to shorten this clip. It's okay. Uh, back in the day, we were basically requesting XML from our servers and using that in our front ends. And those XML schemas were, generally speaking, developed by the same team, which meant that you got all sorts of annoying inconsistencies. You had to make sure that the XML schema was kept up to date with the front end requirements and the front end was kept up to date with the data the back end was kicking out. Mm. The introduction of Node means that all of a sudden we're actually talking not just JSON, which had been around for a while, but javascript generated json so we've got exactly the same we're flowing data from the back end to the front end that can just be transparently used by either it doesn't require any special descriptors or schemas it just works yeah we're serializing with the same language right yeah you know that you've got an array there you've got an object here you can call this method because it's all just the same language Mm -hmm. on the client on the server and in transit and that was a massive massive game changer it meant that, yeah, the the frameworks on the front end freed from the requirement to be somewhat agnostic as to what they actually talk to and what have you. And also, the developers on the back end, who'd previously put all of their energies into building out crazy big back end frameworks, all of those those energies combine, and JavaScript kind of explodes. Yeah. I think I had a big problem with Node, um, um, when it first came out, I had conversations, uh, conferences, and I'm going like, yeah, yeah, this node stuff's great. And then, and as a web developer, I was like, okay, let's have a look at it. And each time I had a look at it, the first thing I had to do was make a web server. That was like the tutorial. <laughs> uh, and so that kind of put me off at the beginning because it's like, why, why would I want to write a web server? I want to solve business problems. I want to, you know, solve what, what I want to solve. I want to like develop stuff. I don't want to develop a web server. You know, and I don't want to like each time I am doing something, I need to to do that. So of course, I got got used to this idea, and then you start understanding that you can manage routing, and you're actually your, your your application stack is much better. So you got stuff like Express, which is yeah. a, um, uh, another MVC framework for the server side of JavaScript. We're not going to go too deep into that because we're talking about the client side. But then I actually then realized where, where I was wrong. Uh, or where had misconceptions about Node.js. And Node.js like leads into a lot of things. First and foremost is the idea of NPM, the Node Package Manager. So you're able to stop 
writing, rewriting the wheel each time you're doing something. I need to do a validation framework. Okay, let me go and find a validation framework. And there's something out there in NPM land. I think we've we've spoken about NPM before and we've spoken about package managers before, but even back in the days of jQuery and Moo and all of this stuff, we had dependency and package management problems that weren't really reliably solved. You were just grabbing a copy of jQuery and sticking it in your application, or you were pinning to a specific version on a CDN, but there was no real management of dependencies within even just our simple front-end apps. You know, you just grab the latest version. NPM brings package management that Node required because Node's on the server side, and all the guys on the server side are like, yeah, but we want to use modules because that's what we do. We don't rewrite this stuff. And it also kind of then trickles through and down into the front-end because the boundary starts to blur massively. I think prior to, I'm trying to work out, because NPM came out with Node. I know that we had Bower for front-end. Yeah, and Grunt um, as well. That was a Twitter project. Bower kind of fell away. And even now, you know, NPM's somewhat being replaced a little by newcomers like Yarn and what have you. But fundamentally, the need for package management was never considered quite great enough, I think, on the front-end when it was front-end only. The minute we've got front and back-end, NPM comes along, and all of these tools come along. And because we're now loading all of these dependencies, just to circle back to the general route that you were heading in, we're loading all these front-end dependencies. We need to work out ways of of managing them and working with them and building them into our applications. Yeah. On the simplest level, the problem is that on the server side, you, you want to split out the logic into different files, right? Because you don't want to have like one 10,000-line file which is your web application but actually that's what the browser wants or has wanted until http2 but i digress you want to compress that file and send one file only to the browser because you don't want sending thousands of files which would be each class each object each thing to the browser will be multiple http requests which will get blocked etc etc so that your the structure of application is great but you need to somehow join it up so it's one file right yeah, it's effectively the needs of the developer are at total odds to the needs of the actual end user. Mm-hmm. The end user, in this case, being the client, the web browser. But yeah, as you say, the web browser wants it minified, it wants it small, it wants it fast, and it wants it in one file. The developer wants the opposite of that. They want it verbose and they want it spread out and organized and structured so they can work on it. So the solution to this, of course, is the front-end builders, task runners, call them what you will. Yeah, and we have a proliferation of these that just just jump. I mean, I come from an Ant background, and I still use Ant and Maven and things like that because that seems to have solved the problem. But because I think because of how much JavaScript changes or has been in the last few years, which we'll get to in a second, there's always this kind of we're trying to solve something that then gets solved by the language itself. So you then you have these these libraries that that try to solve one thing that then the language kind of solves. So you got this like one step behind the, the development. And Ant allowed people to build like like a Grunt. Have you seen Grunt scripts? They're like my eyes, they burn when you when you look at them, you know. <laughs> Their logo is a warthog. Grunt is not pretty, but it yeah. does, <laughs> does the job. True. 
But then it does the job right up until the point when somebody decided that it doesn't do the job well enough because it hasn't got enough parallelism, it's not quite fast enough, and it got more or less not replaced, but again, there was a new kid on the block, Gulp, which did pretty much the same things, the same end results, but it did it in a different way. Did it faster? Did it better? Did it with more shiny? I don't know. Mm -hmm. What I've found interesting is that, again, there was a massive explosion in web front-end development of using these task runners, this was nothing new. You'd had stuff like Rake in the Ruby world, and I'm guessing pretty much every language had pre-parsers and uh, you know, reference to metaprogramming and all of this stuff in uh, C and all of these different languages. It's been around in proper development, and I should probably stop saying that, forever the idea that you want to manipulate and pre-process your source code or that you want to inject macros or, or whatever it happens to be the front end actually was just really late to the party yeah so they had some catching up to do okay they had some catching and some growing up to do real quick i think now we've all come to a consensus that webpack is the the way to go and i'm gonna and by the probably by the time that this comes out i'm gonna be wrong <laughs> Oh, come on. We said we weren't going to make too many front-end JavaScript jokes. But yeah, so Webpack is kind of the go-to at the moment um, because it handles a whole bunch of the common problems. Uh, I mean, it does clever stuff, stuff, actually, because if you have like very different pages, it will analyze what's being used per page. So if you can put like common stuff and you can say per page, breakdowns of libraries. So it's not just like minifying and, and, and downloading everything at once for you to do that. You can actually spread that over the, the use of your website. So it actually, you know, you're not downloading things that you don't need at that point, if I understand Webpack correctly. Um, yeah. So it, I mean, the thing that the main thing, I suppose, that Webpack does is it takes all of the underlying requirements, which in the simplest form are things like uh, minification and, and combination of uh, source code, JavaScript source code. It also handles uh, cross-compilation, mm -hmm. uh, because as we'll talk in a minute, we now have to transpile our JavaScript into different languages or different versions of JavaScript. Right. And... It handles um, asset compilation, so stuff like SAS, etc. But it does it in the smartest way that it possibly can to make sure that we are getting the most optimized build flow that we can get. And of course, with that, there's also a whole bunch of caching stuff in there, I should imagine. And it's, yeah. So we went from the really simple days of Grunt where it was just run this task on that thing. And we very quickly arrived at something like Webpack, which is a very versatile, flexible and powerful toolkit for working with all of our front-end modules, all of our front-end code, all of our front-end assets. What happened, or has been happening, is there's been a lot of frameworks now that we've got this transpilation in there. Um, we should touch on Babel in, in a second, but I think given the context of this is why did suddenly go from nothing to having loads of different frameworks and, and things you know, changing in the JavaScript world? And it can't be just a death of Flash, right? So I had a little look at when different versions of ECMAScript, which we haven't mentioned that JavaScript is not called JavaScript, it's called ECMAScript, right? It is, yes. Um, and it's kind of always been called ECMAScript, but you know, that's a, the, 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 the flashy name is JavaScript. But so if we look at like when it 
came out, or which different editions, like first edition in 97, second edition in 98, third edition in 99, and then nothing until the fifth edition in 2009. You know, <laughs> that's like a decade of, of, of nothing. You know, the, uh, the noughties didn't have different editions. And then after that, you have a 2011, 2015, 2016, 2017. So you got like ES 2018 and 2000, etc. Well, actually, we don't have 2018. We have 2017 the, yet. The one thing I would say just before you go where you're going, because I know where you're going, um, is that 10-year gap. It wasn't that JavaScript just stopped. Right. That is That 10-year gap is the browser wars. That is different vendors adding different vendor-specific functionality. That is basically a Charlie Foxtrot decade for JavaScript. Yeah. It was a complete and total mess. It was still being added to and enhanced and what have you, but the standards, guys, which is fundamentally what ECMAScript is, it's the standard implementation right, of JavaScript, gave up. They threw their hands in the air and said, we can't do this anymore. We're not going to, we, we can't standardize this. You're, you're all doing the wrong things and you're all doing it different. And ah. yeah, I think they tried in like what version four was trying to, to do a standardization halfway through that period, but then they abandoned yeah. it because they had, you had Microsoft. Microsoft is now becoming a much better company or is becoming the nice guy in the room compared to everybody else. But back then they were like, yeah, no, Internet Explorer does everything and that's all it does, you know, like screw everybody else. Yeah, Microsoft in 2002 on the web were complete dicks. Yeah. Um, there's no other way to say it. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we, we've put that behind us, um, and now we're back onto a fairly solid developer-led, standards-based release cycle for JavaScript, which, don't get me wrong, I don't necessarily agree with all of the changes they make. I thought that some of the ECMA 6 stuff, or maybe it was ECMA 7, there's, there's some way that it's like there's some syntactic changes and it's like, okay, well, that's just for the computer scientists out there. Didn't really need to change that. Doesn't really add anything. But there's also some amazing new features that are coming along uh, in these different versions. It's clearly people much cleverer than me are behind the choices that are going into to ECMAScript. Which is what you need. All these changes that came out lead to a couple of things. So you got like people trying to fill in the gaps uh, frameworks that provide features that you don't have and frameworks that fill in for features that are coming. So this is where Babel came came in with this transpiler, being able to do shims and saying, okay, so well, you can't, if your browser doesn't have this feature because it doesn't comply with this ECMAScript thing, we're going to provide it. I think one of them could be Promises, if I'm correct. That was one of the... Um, it was definitely shimmed. I don't think that Babel necessarily helps you shim, does it? I think Babel handles the fact that a lot of the, the the bigger problem with the newer versions of ECMAScript is only the newer versions of browsers can actually run it natively. Right. Well, Babel has a whole bunch of plugins, so you can you can add stuff in as you need and take away stuff as you need. So okay, cool. Um, I might be wrong. Yeah, so Remember, this is not our uh, our full time job. Well, it is in a kind of way, but not to do front end. <laughs> Yeah, we're not full-time front-end, we're, we're full-stack, which means we're old and grumpy and we do back-end where we can. Yeah, but the, the, the whole situation of requiring these new versions of languages come out, but older browsers still exist, and this is something that has ever been the problem, but it does mean that Babel attempts to solve that by taking the new version of the syntax and basically transpiling it into an older standard version of JavaScript whilst maintaining all of the functionality. 
So you can use all of the WYSI operators and all the shiny goodness, and something else takes care of the fact that actually it might be run on a platform where that's not understood. Well, getting into this, I think one of the things that the, the new JavaScript kind of blew my mind was the, the callback hell, as I call it, because you had this whole idea that, you know, and you, get, you had this in jQuery, really, because everything brought a function back. You had callbacks being sent in some stuff. So you had to wait for something which was asynchronous. So then you had to, you know, it, it happened. But other codes, what kept on happening was that because you can't freeze the UI whilst you're waiting for the server to come back. And you can get into a big mess of, of nested functionality, you know, because of the callback. And I guess promises solve that, right? And I'm still trying to get my head around all of this. And I know people are screaming, going, but they're easy. They're just. I think it's it's twofold because I mean I struggled to a degree with the asynchronicity not because it's particularly hard but because it may be at odds with the way that you write other code right because by and large a lot of the stuff that we do on the back end is it's completely synchronous it might be threaded on occasion but you know it's like request comes in do the thing give them the response let's go yeah and the front end, and, and indeed JavaScript on the server, has a couple of restrictions, and they're all to do with the fact that fundamentally JavaScript is, this is a gross oversimplification, it is single-threaded, right? So we have one thread that runs all of our stuff, therefore we need to do as little as as possible on that thread and then get the hell out of Dodge. Oh yeah, and we, and we need to not lock that thread, right? So we'll yeah, put it somewhere else. lock that thread, because if we block that thread, nothing else is going to happen yeah. and the UI will freeze. And because of its very nature, JavaScript was written this way and it has a couple of nice handoffs. There's like an event thread that runs in the background where you can stick this stuff. But yeah, I'd say that once you get your head around it, even just traditional asynchronous event-driven uh, programming is, is, is pretty straightforward. Promises are effectively syntactic sugar to make it easier to work with that kind of uh, the asynchronousness of JavaScript rather than having to just write a whole bunch of nested callbacks and what have you. It, it allows you to flatten out your code whilst effectively achieving exactly the same result, which is we don't know when this thing is going to happen. But when it happens, do that. And we're talking about different ways of writing code. So a lot of languages came up in the meantime. I think they're dying off a little bit because of as the features come in, into the language. But, for example, CoffeeScript. And just to be completely clear, I, I don't like the fact that these are described as languages. I would use dialects. Okay, no, fair enough. No, they're JavaScript dialects, like CoffeeScript, TypeScript, NativeScript. I mean, and, and I know it's, people are going to shout us that, that we're wrong, but it's a concept that you're able to write uh, JavaScript in a certain way that's nicer. Well, there was, this is it. I mean, CoffeeScript is probably the oldest of these, don't quote me, but that has been around because effectively it was for... I don't know if it was, but it does seem that there's a massive parity between people who are writing in things like Ruby and Python that are very not C-like. You know, C-like language is all curly braces and semicolons, right? And JavaScript, in its native form, originally was all curly braces and semicolons. And CoffeeScript was an attempt to basically just say, well, you don't need all that crap. Let's just simplify it. Right. Let's make it nice and clean and easy to write, like your beautiful Ruby code or your, your gorgeous Python scripts. TypeScript, again, is a pushback by 
people who said, well, JavaScript's great, but I can't use that for enterprise because it's not strongly typed. So I'm going to make something that's strongly typed. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, I have no problem with that. So again, you've got the likes of, I think, isn't TypeScript a Microsoft project? It is, yeah. Yeah. So basically, you've got a bunch of C-sharp developers who are used to working in a strongly typed environment and all of the advantages that gives them and what have you, looking at JavaScript and going, but that's not what I know. That doesn't that doesn't look like comfy to me. And again, CoffeeScript, that doesn't look comfy. There's semicolons all over the place. NativeScript, I think, to a lesser degree, that is more about targeting a specific, different, specific runtime, specific browser, right? Well, I mean, it's not a browser. It's tr- trying to convert JavaScript straight into Android apps and iOS apps, right? So you don't need to, you know, it's this whole transpilation, but it's making them native on on the phone. As the name would suggest. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's the idea that, because we also had this massive explosion of people using these frameworks like React and Angular and what have you to build mobile apps. We haven't even talked about like Cordova and PhoneGap and all this right. stuff. We should touch on. I mean, I think. I think well, if we're talking, if we're talking native script, then we we kind of have to. Right. Why are people wanting to run JavaScript on iOS and Android? Right. Um, PhoneGap was a way to package up your web applications and give you access to new JavaScript APIs that are only available on the phone. Right. Mm-hmm. So, in essence, if you've ever built a mobile app using um, Xcode, for example one of the first UI widgets that you can do is do like a full screen browser, right? But it's actually running in an app. So you can actually then give it access to uh, capabilities that only an app could have. And that's what essentially what PhoneGap was giving you, was giving you access to um, location services. I know that you can now get this from the browser, but accelerometer. You know, camera, microphone, all of the hardware gubbins inside the phone were exposed to a client-side or front-end web application that was also running on the phone. Yeah, that was running within an app, so that's why I had access to it. So PhoneGap was, made that really easy, the whole packaging, so that you could write essentially a web app, but that would be like a running on the phone kind of native. Now, native scripts taken that that concept and actually making it into an, into a native app. I think it makes it into a native app, and it also, again, it goes one step further in that it it really doesn't use a bridge to interface with this hardware. It uses the underlying native interface, so it's much more performant. And this was one of the big things when you know PhoneGap was doing the rounds. People would say, oh, but you can't do that. It's not as performant as writing native. And then the web crowd would fire back, well, actually, I think you'll find it is. And there was the, the classic Facebook demo, I think, where they did an HTML5 version of their, their interface that performed like a gajillion times faster than the native application that they also wrote. Yeah. Um, or it might even have been one of the... I think it was actually one of the framework suppliers did it. They rebuilt an existing app. Um, was it EXT? I can't remember. I'll see if I can dig this out. We'll put it in the show notes anyway. Um, I'm not making it up. They they actually rebuilt an HTML5 version and packaged it, and it was so much more performant and efficient than the native app that it, it was mind-boggling. But anyway, yeah, so NativeScript exists as a, another extension to JavaScript and allows you basically to... All of these are aimed at allowing your development team to be 
as productive as possible in effectively the same kind of tools and the same kind of language across as many platforms as possible, right? Server, client front end, mobile, mobile native, etc. Which is wonderful in the new new world of app, mobile app development, which is where everyone's going. But then there's the future. I guess the future, I've been to a few demos. There's a great conferences actually out there that I just have to like hat tip. In two weeks, there's full stack conference down in Codenode in in central London, which will have loads of this stuff in. And later on in November, I am going to have a look. There's a half stack conference, which is like a, a conference in a pub in, usually it's in Shoreditch, which is awesome. People showing you really, really cool stuff happening in the browser. And this is stuff like Bluetooth, VR, with A-frame and things like that. And uh, one of the demos that I saw was someone controlling a Bluetooth uh, drone, like a small handheld drone by Bluetooth from the browser. Nice. So all of the, the control code was written in in uh, JavaScript and is accessing you know, the browser. So never mind apps having access to your camera, we now have access to other cool stuff, right? You can have access to the camera that's on your drone. Right, exactly. Via Bluetooth. I was going to ask you what this WebAssembly thing was. Well, this is, I suppose, a indicator, first and foremost, of the maturity of JavaScript as a, a fully-fledged player, a member of the... They have a seat at the technology table, right? Right. Whereas, you know, before it was just front-end. Now they are they're properly inducted. And WebAssembly is basically a browser technology or a, a client technology that allows you to write and compile JavaScript in a special way, a binary way, that runs as if you had run assembly code on the native machine. Oh, hence the name. Yeah. It's it's nothing new, but what it allows us to do is to push assembly code into um, a machine remotely over the web, and therefore we can get insane performance out of specific JavaScript workloads. Now, this isn't for everything. This isn't like um, we're going to, oh, there's gonna, they're going to rebuild React to use WebAssembly. No, it's, it's not for general day-to-day computing. But we've all had that thing that has needed every ounce of power that the machine can give us. And the obvious two here are, the, you know, the, you mentioned VR before. The, the processing workloads for VR, even on the client, are quite high. Right. Gaming has always had a fairly high compute requirement and it needs as much efficiency as it can get. So WebAssembly is is that. It's assembly language. It runs in the browser in a sandbox, um, but it can be written in JavaScript. And it's there mostly, the reason I've pointed out is mostly as an example of the sheer breadth that on the one hand, we've got these massive high-level frameworks doing their best to, to simplify UI development, and right the way down at the other end, we've got assembly language. Come on. <laughs> right. Wow. So we, th- that's a breadth, isn't it? It's like all the way from like the, 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 the feeble browser all the way down to the hardcore um, assembly language executable. Yeah. There has been a change, though, hasn't there? That, not a change. There has been a very significant addition, which is this whole idea of service workers and... PWAs, right? Yeah, so those who've followed uh, web development might be thinking, well, service workers on that. But again, it's about solving problems 
in this distributed web environment in which we work that aren't problems if you work just on a server or just on a, an application. And the idea that the web was bound to only operate as long as the request response cycle was running. I mean, sure, we could kick off a timer, but the minute you left that page, you close that tab, that application loses the ability to do anything because it doesn't exist anymore. And we want to do stuff like uh, send me notifications, but not just notifications from some server. I want to send me a notification that I've arrived in, in, in a certain location. Uh, send me a notification that, I know, my battery's in a 10%. Send me a notification to, of whatever, you know? Yeah. Or react to this event that has occurred on the client without having to have the page open all the time. Right. right. So the idea of service worker... Um, brings yet more JavaScript, but it, it really helps us to understand, potentially see where some of the future of this is going with the democratization of web computing. Because in a simple form, I can use it just to subscribe to events on the system, or as you say, push notifications. In a more advanced form, you could say, well, actually, if I have a service worker combined with WebAssembly that recognizes when that computer's resources are idle, I can actually make use of those resources to potentially, I can distribute my application across multiple clients. I don't need to have all of this massive server infrastructure anymore. And again, this is all like super hypothetical from my end, um, but you can kind of see where this stuff is going. And that is super exciting. Right, because like web apps are stopping being the web. Uh, so one of the, the terms that has been uh, bandied a lot in hand in hand with service workers and PWS is, is offline first. It's like your application yeah. should work offline. It's like uh, your web applications work offline. You might be going, well, it can't because it takes data. But a lot of stuff, a big example for me is always like the, the, the conference web page, right? You're at a conference, the Wi-Fi is shoddy, and you're like, I just want to know where the next session is. It's like, well, no, you have to connect to our server for that. It's like, why? Why didn't, why didn't you just download everything and, and have it in the background, be offline. And if there are changes, you know, they get pushed out or, you know, the next time you connect. Yeah, and I think it's that's the key thing, is it's making connectivity optional and it's bundling up. Sure, you'll have the requirement for an initial connection, which is why, again, offline first bugs me, because if you're offline first, you're not getting the app. But right. offline second yeah. <laughs> or offline tolerant is really really straightforward to do with stuff like service worker and you know local storage and all of these additional enhancements that have come in through front end and if you think about it even things like you know a newspaper you might be like well a newspaper has to be online all the time it's like well it kind of doesn't if it can hop online once every couple of hours and get the latest news you're probably going to be none the wiser yeah unless especially when it's doing that when it's doing that in your pocket right yeah especially given that a lot of the native apps have been doing this stuff forever yeah, they'll just quietly wander off and, and get some more information to put on your Facebook wall. Which is a great point for me to say, if you're abroad, do turn off roaming because your phone is wandering off getting information oh, yeah. at night and uh, your bill goes to the roof. It's doing all of this stuff in the background. But yeah, and the concept of a progressive web app is, I suppose, almost, to me, it's almost one of the most important things because we've got all of these crazy, funky, cool technologies. And the one thing that developers like is developers like toys. We like having things that we can tinker with and play with. And we like cool new technologies. 
the concept of a progressive web app is as old as near as damn it the web itself and it's this idea that yeah sure all of this stuff is cool but we shouldn't be reliant upon it right we should progressively enhance our applications and that we should build them in such a way that even if we don't have access to all of the funky tools even if we don't have access to to connectivity at that point the app should still work and that's a great point as long as everything's working to leave out but actually before we leave what do you think is going to be the future and i know this is putting you on the spot i mean we've now got javascript working on the server infiltrating the server side getting too big for its breaches and then becoming WebAssembly working like natively everywhere. It does seem how many people are doing it. That it's becoming like the de facto, not just web language, but kind of development language because you can cross compile it. Do you think you'll go that far? I think the Java guys would disagree. <laughs> right. So, no, it's not going to be the enterprise languages. Sure. But well, we'll see. I think that we're still in, a period of massive flux, all of this stuff is still really young. Um, I think that we are going to see, uh, assuming that you know we, we survive the next five years and don't get bombed out of existence or trade ward back into the dark ages, yeah. I think that we're basically going to see a continued maturation of JavaScript and its use. We're going to see continued pushing of the envelope in terms of, as I say, this concept of distribution of computational responsibility. And we are going to continue to see JavaScript as one of many in a field of, of players. I certainly, the one thing I would say is that if you were, right now, if you were to start learning modern JavaScript, you would not regret it in five to ten years' time. True. True. I think it's definitely it's it's going to be relevant for a significant stretch of time. But then again, people said people said that about Flex. Yeah, but the thing is, but 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 as you said, like Flex was a closed standard that you know it wasn't something that you know the fact that that JavaScript is an open standard that there's going to be a lot of even if you don't have browsers, it's still going to run. Does that make sense? It's like even if Chrome and Firefox stop, cease to exist, you know, like JavaScript can still run, which was not the case many years ago. Yeah, and I think it lends itself... JavaScript is one of those fantastic languages that it's not perfect, but it's just about good enough to do pretty much anything. And that makes it brilliant for the web. It makes it brilliant for... Um, IoT, it makes it brilliant for connected devices, it makes it brilliant for disconnected devices. The idea that, you know, you can basically say, well, we're going to write it in JavaScript, and most people will just go, oh, yeah, okay, fine. We're, we're getting to the point where it's almost, you know, nobody ever got fired for choosing to write their application in JavaScript. We're, we're almost there, not quite. Not quite. Uh, uh, you, yeah. you try that into, in a fintech or in a financial uh, institution, not a fintech one, but a financial institution. I think well, they're like, no. Increasingly, though, you look at it and they're, you know, they, they're putting layers on top of these old AS400 systems and what have you. And the next generation of coders are like, well, fair enough. We can't touch the core stack because that's enterprise Java and there's only one person in the entire world who knows how it works. But what we can do is we can interface here, there, and they're probably going to use JavaScript to do it. 
because they can use TypeScript. They can make sure that it applies all of the relevant checking. They can show that it's fully tested, that it's incredibly performant, and it's all of this stuff. So, yeah, I would say that even the great bastion that is financial services, JavaScript is just kind of niggling its way in slowly but surely. And once it's got in, it's very difficult for it to be removed because now it's going to be the old legacy JavaScript applications from the 2017 and 2018 years. This is, frankly, this is what I'm hoping for. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to the fact that at some point, JavaScript will have evolved so far that in, in kind of 50 to 60 years' time, there will be desperate consulting positions for people who know jQuery. Yeah. It's like, going to be like the COBOL of its day. <laughs> um, and then I'll be able to, ro- to roll in and, and charge my day rate of a gajillion yen. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, because I remember how jQuery works. Yeah, I know my jQuery UI. Oh, my God, he's got, he's got the UI as well. <laughs> and in, so until that day, we have to bid you all farewell. May you play well with your webpack. May you uh, enjoy your web VR using A-frame and whatever. May you appreciate that if you're listening to this on the web, then you're probably, JavaScript is probably streaming it right into your ear holes right now. Wow. And on that note, bye.